Okay, so Heidelberg Catechism. Um, remind me what Lord's Day? Four. This <laughs> shell's like four. Lord's Day four. Okay. Okay, yeah, good stuff. All right, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your relentless grace to us, given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for blessing us in Him. Thank you for never giving up on us. And thank you, Father, for your continual sanctification by the power of your Spirit and the Word that you use. And we pray that we would grow in our knowledge of that Word now in this catechism time. We pray that we would continue to learn the doctrines that you have revealed in your word and that we have confessed as your people down through the ages, that we would know what you teach and what we believe and why we believe it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have categories in which to think and a proper view based on the things that you have revealed in your word and in your mighty acts in history so that we might view the world properly. Help us, Lord, we pray, to grow in our understanding of these things and to enjoy it. And we ask, Father, that you would bless our time, our our discussion together. May it be edifying to one another and glorifying to your name. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, Heidelberg Catechism, uh, published in 1563. So at the heart of the Reformation, we think of the early Reformation as those first few decades of the 16th century. you know, the, 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 the 1520s, 1530s, I mean, often we, we begin with 1517, October 31st, as sort of the official mark of the begin of the Reformation with Luther nailing his 95 Theses on the uh, castle church door in Wittenberg. But actually, uh, there was a lot that had led up to that. Uh, the Renaissance that begins, you know, 100 years before, uh, even more, in uh, its call to go back to the original sources of uh, Greek and Latin texts and learn the classics, including the Bible. So there's this renewed interest in studying the Bible in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. And then there are also lots of calls within the Roman Catholic Church for moral reform. A lot of moral reformers in the uh, 14th and 15th centuries. And so by the time you get to the 16th century, the church in the West, uh, particularly in Italy and Germany, um, through France and into Britain, is very ripe for a Reformation. Uh, you, so you think about, that's in 1517 when Luther nails his theses up. Then in 1520 and into the 1520s, he starts publishing lots of books that are very important, like The Liberty of the Christian, uh, uh, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and starts uh, li- outlining important Protestant doctrines, and so it begins gaining traction. By the time you get to the the publication of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, um, now you have guys like Calvin, who are very old, uh, uh, Vermili, uh, who just died the year before. Calvin will die the following year in 1564, and the the, the Reformed uh, Confession is now being codified in confessions like the Belgic Confession, which was published in 1561, and catechisms like the Heidelberg, 1563. I'm just giving you a little bit of background. It's good for us to know the backstory on these things. I think sometimes we have, well, I know we do, we have a very superficial view 
of history in general. I think Americans are probably the worst at doing history um, because our history is very short. And uh, we sometimes have a, a, a superficial view of the Reformation. It's good to locate these things and to know, um, you know, 1563 was quite different than, say, 1513 or 1533 even. Um, by now, the Reformation has gained a lot of traction. There's been a lot of thought put into uh, the doctrines of justification by faith alone, um, sin, uh, depravity, sacraments, church, good works, prayer. Um, you have decades now of Reformed thinkers uh, that are putting these things on paper, teaching them in the universities, the seminaries, even in some of the monasteries. And, uh, and so you have a guy like Arsinus who uh, publishes this in 1563 for children, and it was commissioned by the, the, uh, the civil magistrate in that particular part of Europe called the Palatinate, um, a guy by the name of uh, Frederick Elector in Heidelberg. Great, Heidel, great catechism, as we've seen, teaching tool that uh, flows in the uh, outline of guilt, grace, gratitude, 52 Lord's Days, since there are 52 Sundays in the year, so you can go through the whole thing in one year. And we're now at Lord's Day 4, which is still in the, the guilt section. And so we remember there's the intro, uh, questions one and, 1 and 2, uh, guilt, questions 3 through, anybody know? 11, grace, Questions 12 through, anybody know? 85. And gratitude. Questions 86 through 129. And the grace section goes through the Apostles' Creed. Gratitude section goes through uh, Ten Commandments and Lord's Prayer. So we're still in this section, the guilt section. Uh, God willing, we'll finish it up now in the next 30 minutes. Uh, So questions 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11. Question 9. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? Man, however, tempted by the devil, in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants. Right, so uh, we talked a little bit last week about that important doctrine of uh, federal headship, you know, the two Adams. And so the first Adam is uh, created in true righteousness and true holiness, and he's not sinful, he's not evil, Uh, he has a true and pure free will. He can choose to obey God, and he has the ability to choose to disobey God. But he is not born with, inner, with any inner propensity to, uh, or proclivity to sin, you know, the way we are. We, we are conceived and born in sin, so we already have a natural proclivity to sin, a natural desire for sin. Um, I often say, you know, you don't have to teach a child how to sin. He already knows how to. Um, and, and, but yet Adam isn't like that. Adam is created with the ability to keep God's law. He, he has the ability to obey. He can 
he can continue on in obedience, but he, being tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience, robs not only himself, but all his descendants of these gifts. And so we call that doctrine original sin. We talked a bit about this last week. Really important to understand original sin. What do we mean by original sin? Yeah, Angela. Sin comes into the world originally. That's right. What else uh, is that? There's several things we could talk about. So sin first comes into the world through Adam. What else does uh, original sin mean? Puts it on the rest of his descendants, right. That's really important. So uh, there was a debate between St. Augustine and uh, a British monk by the name of Pelagius in uh, I think the early 5th century uh, where uh, Pelagius didn't like something that Augustine prayed in his prayer that um, God uh, command what you will and then grant that we will do your commands. And uh, he, he wanted to bring it back. Pelagius wanted to emphasize the importance that we have the ability to do God's will. And it, they entered into this great debate about original sin. And Pelagius denied original sin and said that sin did not affect his descendants. It just affected Adam. That we're all born with the ability to obey the law. And that's where this whole idea of the age of accountability comes from. There's no such thing as the age of accountability. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's, uh, that's just a modern aberration, a modern myth. Um, the Bible says that we are, we are conceived and born in sin. Right, because his son is in the covenant and set apart as the people of God. That's the, reason why Paul's, that's the reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that your children are holy. They're set apart. So, so believers, like uh, Candace O'Dort says in, in uh, Head 1, Article 17, we ought not doubt the election of children, the children of believers whom God decides to take out of this life, okay, because they haven't given us any reason to doubt their election. But that doesn't mean that we should assume that all children are elect just because they're children, and now they become unelect at some point when they sin. I mean, that's a denial of one of the most cardinal doctrines of Christianity, which is called original sin. Sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, you find that kind of attitude a lot in church history, where, uh, like Richard Baxter, for example, in the 17th century, was so appalled by the sin that he saw by professing Christians in Oliver Cromwell's army, he was a chaplain, that uh, he thought, you know, we need, to, we need to do better good works. And, uh, and he tampered with the gospel by basically saying you need to... Um, you can't be saved unless you are adding good works to your faith and in such a way that faith alone does not justify. Oftentimes, in other words, people like Pelagius or Baxter look at sin in the world, they look at the church and its immorality, and they respond in the wrong way. 
uh, attacking a doctrine of the gospel. And so Augustine said that uh, before the fall, man was born with the, with, uh, the ability to sin. He was posse, uh, posse pocare, and he was born with the ability not to sin, posse non pocare. He has that ability either way. But after he sins, because as Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Adam is, our, is the federal head of the entire human race. And so through one man's disobedience, Paul says, condemnation comes upon the whole human race, including babies. Um, through one man's act of evil, which is essentially his disobedience in the garden and his breaking of that covenant that God places him in, it affects all of the human race whom he represented there in the garden. Augustine said, yeah, before Adam sins, he has the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. Posse pecare, posse non pecare. But after he sins, man uh, does not have the ability not to sin. He is now in a new category of fallenness. Non posse, non pecare. You don't have the ability not to sin. Try doing it. Just tomorrow, Monday. Do your best. Okay? And the moment that you say, hey, I haven't sinned today. You've already, right there, blown it in, in, in self-righteousness. I mean, it's, it's impossible. Everything we do, even our good works, are somehow tainted and polluted with sin. I mean, there's no, you, cannot, you cannot pump out, crank out, one pristine, perfect work. It's, if you could, then you could merit your own salvation. Even the good that you do is only received by God through the mediation of the second Adam. And yes, this should make you feel bad about yourself. Because we need to understand our sin if we're going to love the gospel and love Christ. That's important. We, when we minimize our own sin and we, we think more highly of ourselves, we think less of Christ and less of his gospel. But when we recognize the evil that we are, like Jonah, Jonah doesn't think he's all that bad. And then suddenly we stripped of everything, he starts crying out to the Lord. Um, then, we, then we recognize the second Adam is our Savior. And it's the second Adam who comes, like the first. And he too, like Adam, he's the only human being born after Adam who is, um, after the fall, I should say, the only human being after the fall who has the same abilities that Adam did before the fall. Posse pecare, posse non pecare. He is able to sin, able not to sin. Now, God, in his divinity, this gets a little tricky because God cannot sin, and Christ is both God and man. But in his humanity, being a real human, uh, body and soul, he has the ability to sin. But he doesn't. He remains obedient. And as Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 21, through one man's act of righteousness, justification comes upon all those whom he represents, who are the elect. So he doesn't represent the entire human race, but he, he represents all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, which are the elect. 
But original sin, we have to understand, is Adam's first sin. And there's two things that the whole human race get. Anybody remember what those two things are? There's two things. This is, this is really important to, to know these two things. If you want to learn some basic Christian doctrine, this is it. And this, all this right here, this is not sophisticated stuff. This is, ba- this is, this is Christianity 101, original sin. Every Christian should know these things. And now there's two things that you get in original, that original sin uh, gives the whole human race. It's good to know these two things. The first is guilt. The second is pollution or corruption. Now those are two different things. The pollution or the corruption, okay, that's why we look at the world and the world's messed up. That's why we, there's crime. That's why there's hatred. That's why you fight with your spouse. That's why you said something re- that you regret this week. Imagine if we all were recorded with everything we said. How would you like it played in church? It'd be pretty embarrassing, huh? Imagine if there was video of you when you're alone, when you're in your worst moment, something you did this past week or this past month or this past year. You'd be pretty embarrassed. I know I would. Why? Because we're polluted. That's why we do it. That's why you don't have to teach a child to, to be a sinner. He already knows how, because he's polluted. It comes from original sin. But he's also guilty. We're guilty before God. The guilt comes not just from our own sin, but from the sin of Adam. He represented us in the garden. And again, if we say, well, why would God hold me responsible for something Adam did? Well, then we can just turn that on his head and say, well, why did God hold Christ responsible for something I did? That's how it works. Guilt is what justification solves. God announces you, pronounces you righteous, saying that I no longer look at you as guilty in my sight by virtue of the righteousness of the second Adam, which my son earned. Pollution is solved by sanctification. And that's that lifelong process that's so slow. We've still got some of that pollution in us. All right? And that's what's going on in our lives. It was going on in Jonah's life. And it's going on in our life. And, uh, and as you know, the Puritans used to say, the, the pathway to sanctification, the pathway to holiness, is paved with a good sense of your own wretchedness. The more you're being sanctified, the more you see just how wretched you are and how much you need God's grace and God's mercy. That really, our, our, our view of ourselves gets lower and lower and lower. And our view of Christ gets higher and higher and higher. Uh, it's the person who's, who has a high view of himself. That's the person I'm concerned about. That's the person that, um, that still has a long, long way to go. <laughs> long way to go on that path of sanctification. And that's why we feel bad about the law. That's why the law is like, ugh, again. But that's why the, what makes the gospel so sweet. So anyway, original sin. That's the, that's the doctrine. These are the two things that it gives us. 
this is, this is God's uh, remedy to it. And uh, it, it ultimately comes through Adam, who was our representative, our federal head in the garden. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Is it fair to say that Adam was the only person who had, you know, true free will? Well, in one sense, yeah, we can say that's true. I mean, and he, he and, and Eve, but Eve was not our representative, which that's an interesting thought. Eve was not our representative. Adam was, according to the New Testament. So what should Adam have done? After Eve sinned, I'll let you answer that question. What should he have done? He's called to protect the garden above all, but he doesn't do it. But God had his purposes and his plans. And we'll see both Adam and Eve in glory. We have evidence of that in Scripture. Uh, but the thing is, is that, uh, where, were we, where were we going with this? I just thought of something else that was great, I want to tell you. Oh, free will, thank you. So Adam, yeah, Adam had free will. 46, man, it's starting to happen. Uh, Adam has true free will. Uh, Christ has true free will. Okay, now, in one sense, though, we have to understand that we all have free will. We have free will. Um, The problem is that since the fall, our will is polluted. It's distorted. So we are not apart from the grace of God, regenerating our hearts, going to choose Christ. We are naturally going to say, no, I don't want to submit to Jesus Christ on our own. We need the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, to give us a new heart that now sees our need for a Savior and wants Christ. Because remember, apart from God's grace given to us in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 1, we are by nature God-haters. And you know, the catechism talks about I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. And so, yeah, then in one sense, Michelle, you could say Adam has pure free will. We could say his free will is not distorted. Neither was Christ's. Our free will is distorted. It's distorted. You put the choice, you're going to choose as the heart wants. So, you know, if we, bring, if we went to the, you know, grades one through three class, we brought them all out here, and we said, freely choose you this day that which you want. And you put, um, you know, a piece of chocolate cake on one plate, and on the other plate, you know, uh, cold boiled down spinach. Like we used to eat it in the 70s. That was so wrong. That was so wrong. What was wrong with the 70s? They didn't cook vegetables in the 70s properly. What happened there? It was like a culinary catastrophe. It was that whole decade. Anyway, the, if you said, uh, choose you this day, which one do you want? I don't know, okay, there's probably some weird kid that would want the, but you get the idea. I mean, typically he's going to go, cake. And so, you know, it's the same thing we do with our heart when it comes to Christ and uh, ourselves. We choose ourselves apart from the uh, the grace of God given to us in, in, in Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts. 
So, so God, does God do man an injustice by requiring in his law that which man is unable to do? Not, no, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Your representative had the ability to keep the law. Man, however, tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. The gifts of what? Remember the gifts of glory. Because remember, the goal was to obtain glory. Uh, the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. The glory of creation enjoyed with God. And we fell short of that glory in Adam. All have sinned in Adam and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. We're all polluted. Even if somebody says, well, I don't feel like I'm that polluted. I'm a pretty good guy. Well, the problem is you're still guilty before God, apart from Jesus Christ. And you're actually more polluted than you realize. Um, and the law is what exposes that. Okay. Any other questions before we move on to question 10? Yeah, Angela. So, in terms No, no, he has, a, he has the, the ability to do either one. But, but in the sin, and of course we're now polluted and guilty, yeah. No, well, think of it this way, is that what Scripture says is that Adam has the ability to obey and to, and to disobey. And he's born in true righteousness and true holiness. So he has no inner temptation or proclivity to sin. But the ability to to disobey God, lies within him. Not because, of, not because he is flawed in any way, but because he has true, pristine free will. And he's, in, he's born into a period of probation. So he needs to pass the probationary status, proving his, his loyalty to God, the suzerain, proving his fidelity to his creator. Um, he doesn't reach that. Once he sins, now think of the engine as you know, having a bunch of sand in it. It doesn't run properly. So he's born with this, you know, Ferrari Teslarosa engine. Thing's awesome. And then the fall comes and it's like a handful of sand is going right into the pistons. And now it doesn't run properly. So, uh, so the, the pollution that spreads to the human race means that we, it, it prevents us, even from conception on, from, uh, from, from, from uh, obeying the will of the Lord perfectly. So now, as, as, as uh, Augustine said, getting back to the, the debate, whereas Adam had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin, he was both at the same time, posse pecare, posse non pecare. Now, after the fall, man is not able uh, not to sin. Um, you know, he is, not, he is non passe, non pecare, because he has sand in the engine. He's polluted. Does that make sense? So it's not that God removed a power from him. The power's there, and he's got it. It's a choice. And now the power, you know, we still have a will, but the will is distorted because of sin. Sand in the engine. I just, I just made up that illustration on the fly. I kind of like it. So, um, Okay, question 10. Uh, will, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? 
Right. So God is, is uh, he, he has to, by his nature, punish sin. He is just. He's a just God. And, uh, and then notice how it says here, he's angry about the sin we are born with. Okay, that comes right here again from original sin, guilt. And the sin uh, we personally commit. So he's angry with both. He's angry that you know, we, as the sons of Adam, uh, those whom our first father represented in the garden, uh, have been plunged into this depravity and cosmic treason against God that, that uh, provokes him to exercise his justice. But he's also angry about the sins that we've committed on our own. Um, you know, we, and we need to remember that. You know, we, we, again, getting back to the sermon this morning, we have a tendency to minimize our sin and think little of it. You know, we can see sins that look big on other people, but we think of our own sins as not being that big. But God is angry with those sins too. He's angry with my gossip, with my looking down on people, with you know, my losing my temper, with you know, my, my pride, my uh, ambition. He's, he's, he's angry with all sin. The sin that we have, it's not something that he takes lightly. And he, what he wants, what he created us for, was righteousness and obedience. And that's why it's quoting here, uh, Deuteronomy 27, which Paul quotes in Galatians 3, you know, why did God give the law? Well, it's to show that we need a Savior, the one who kept the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So again, the catechism is heavy on this law-gospel distinction. The law shows us we're guilty. The law shows us we're polluted. We don't think we're guilty. We don't think we're that polluted apart from the law doing its work. But the law also then, as we'll see, drives us to Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law in our place. And that's, that's what brings us the comfort and the assurance and the consolation and the hope that we need, knowing that we have peace with God, this God who requires perfection who requires perpetual obedience to the law, that that has been satisfied by a substitute who is his son, God the Son coming into the world and standing in our place in his obedience, obedience that led him all the way to the cross to pay for our sins. So uh, the second Adam is the only one who is born not affected by original sin. The only one born after the fall. Everyone else, uh, that, that's, he's got sand in the engine. Jesus didn't have sand in the engine. So, any questions on number 10? Well, number 10 naturally leads us to number 11, question 11. Because we hear, okay, well, God is just, right, I get that, but, you know, isn't God also love? Or, in this case... But isn't God also merciful? So it's a good question. Um, isn't God also merciful? 
And you know, I think that there's, a, there's kind of a common conception uh, in our modern day, uh, in our society, that, well, God is mostly love. You know, if, you're, if you were going to divide God up, um, yeah, he's holy, you know, he's got his holy component over here, he's unchangeable, you know, he can kind of go through his attributes, uh, he's eternal, but what he's really is love. I mean, that's the main thing. He's mostly love. And then he's all these other things. That is a wrong way for, of us to conceive of God and of his attributes. He's not mostly one and a little bit of another. He's not like, well, you know, okay, his love, ooh, I'll tip his, his holiness. It doesn't work that way. No, he's all of those things all the time. So he is perfectly holy. That means his holiness cannot receive sin. He's perfectly just, which means sin must be punished. Now, that's bad news, but he's also loving and merciful, and that is revealed in God sending his Son, who fulfills the law in our place, who who satisfies the demands of God's justice. So as Paul says in Romans 3, God is is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And if God has mercy on one person, if God saves one person, Christ could have come for one person out of all the billions of people who ever lived. He would reveal himself in the salvation of that one person as infinitely merciful and gracious because that person did not deserve that. Christ did not need to take on human flesh for anybody. God would have, made, would have remained perfectly just if he had left us all in our sin and we faced hell. But he reveals himself as that which he is also merciful, gracious, loving, by sending his son, and not just for one person, but for an innumerable multitude of people. And so, yes, God is merciful, but he's also just, and he can only be merciful to you if his justice has been satisfied. Yes, Yolanda. Yeah, the Apostle John said that. Yeah, John 3.16, right. You're right, right, right. Right, right, right. Or save none. He can save none if he wanted to. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so John 3.16, I mean, the easiest way to answer that is where it says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the next part is that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The question is, who are the whosoever? Yeah, and so it's true. You know, look how the apostles preached. Did the apostles, did the apostles go into the world and say, <clears throat> okay, excuse me, folks. Uh, you know, we've come all the way from Jerusalem. We're here in Philippi now. And uh, if you are elect, then Christ came for you. 
Well, of course not. They didn't preach that way. They, they, pre- they don't know who's elect. They just they preach, hey, God's grace and his mercy is given to sinners. Come, whosoever will, come. You come now. And come and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's, up to, that's God's business. Who's going to come forward? The elect will. And you know what? There will be other elect who maybe they don't come right then. Maybe they come 30 years later. That's, but that's God's business. This is what makes the altar call so ridiculous. The altar call is not for God. The altar call is for us trying to play God, trying to play the Holy Spirit. There's no altar call in the New Testament. But the closest thing you get to the altar call in the Bible is the Lord's Supper. You know, come and receive. There, there's no altar call like, okay, if you, if you want to come to the Lord Jesus, you come now. Uh, no, you are baptized and into a life of discipleship. But the, 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 you know, the who is God's going to save, that's up to God. But we proclaim it to the world indiscriminately. Whosoever will, come. As Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So nobody's going to come to Jesus and say, I want you, Jesus. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, you're not on the list. If you come to Jesus, it's because you are on the list. But we don't say, hey, if you're on the list, come to Jesus. We say, the list that you're on is this one. It's bad. You're a sinner. That's the list you're on. And judgment's coming. Now flee to Jesus Christ. Now you've got to let the Holy, the Holy Spirit is going to do his work. And we can't play the Holy Spirit. That's always our problem. That's our problem in marital relationships. That's our problem as parents with kids. That's our problem in church. You know, we do it to one another. Pastors often do it to their congregation. Congregations do it to their pastors. We try to play the Holy Spirit. And impersonating the Holy Spirit, it doesn't work. You can't do it. You've got to let God do that part. But the, the, uh, the, getting back to question 11... God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. And his justice is satisfied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that tells us that what Christ satisfied okay, in his perfect life of obedience, it fulfills the law, it fulfills that which Adam failed to do, and then his descent into hell upon the cross, that was equivalent to the punishment that will be meted out in an eternity in hell for all who reject Christ. And that tells us how how serious the cross was. And now you can see why it required uh, not just a man, but the God-man. Because only only God could bear uh, up the punishment, uh, upholding his own humanity in Christ under the weight of God's wrath because it's an equivalent of an eternity in hell for all those whom he represented. And you can know that your hell was paid for. You can know that your, your, the justice of God was satisfied for you. You can have that assurance simply by looking to Jesus Christ, placing your faith in him, saying, I am a sinner, and I need you, Christ, and I look to you. And I'm banking on you to make me right with God and to get me to heaven. I'm not banking on my own merit or on my own good works. I'm banking on you because God's justice was satisfied in him. Any other questions there on uh, question 11 or 9, 10, and 11? Yeah, Mike. Oh, you don't want to know. 
If you really don't know, God bless you. God bless you. You never had to live through that stuff. So, you know, basically what happens is it, start, it started under Finney, Charles Finney, uh, a revivalist preacher in America a couple centuries back. Um, and he would go around and preach the gospel. Interestingly, Finney denied original sin. Finney denied original sin. They can't say what he was preaching was Christianity. It doesn't matter how pure his motives may have been, but what he, he believed that people could obey God if they just were given the right tools. And so anyway, he would go around, have these big uh, revival meetings, and uh, you know, preach, get people to feel really guilty, which you, know, you can do by preaching the law, and say, now if you feel anxious, you, know, you come forward and come up here, sit on this bench. People are going to pray for you. And people would do that. They'd start coming forward to the bench. Well, they started developing, you know, with a lot of these revivalist preachers, you know, in the uh, 1800s. And, and uh, then it gets really popular in the 1900s. D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. And, uh, you know, and then into the Harvest Crusade. Now, I don't want uh, to pick on them too much because I do think that, you know, Billy Graham, when he preaches, or Franklin Graham, when he preaches, you know, he would preach the law and tell you you're a sinner. And that's a whole lot better than what you hear nowadays. Um, and then tell you, you need Christ. And, you know, and sometimes the proclamation of the gospel there, was a, it was a little weak. But, um, but he was telling people, you need the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. But then what would happen is there would be this whole emotional manipulation. You know, and so the music plays. Come just as you are. Hear the Spirit call. Your friends are waiting for you. You know, you know, come and live. You know, people are like, it's emotional, man. You're just like, this is heavy. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it. Come on out. Come on out. You're like, okay, I'm going to step out here. But, oh, here goes another one. And it's all worked up. It's all worked up. And it's, it's sad because a lot of those people that then they have this big emotional experience, well, then you discover that Christianity isn't always like that. You don't have Crystal Lewis singing a song all the time for you. And, uh, you know, it's not hype all the time. It's a long pilgrimage, dusty trails. And so a lot of people, they crash. What you win them with is really what you win them to. And so now you've got to kind of keep reinventing yourself. And, and the altar calls, it's not in Scripture. It's not in Scripture. It's not, the apostles never did that. They just preached. And somebody might say, well, what about Acts chapter 2? It says 3,000 souls were added. Sure. Where's the altar call there? I don't see it. They were baptized. And guess what? Guess what baptism is? It's not just a personal experience that, yeah, I got, I got myself baptized, and now I go on living whatever life I want. No, the next verse says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, they got into a local church where there were elders, a pastor, and they continued growing under the word of God, coming to the sacrament, using their gifts for one another, and knowing people in the fellowship. And then if you go on in the chapter there, it says they even sold, the people who had excess sold their own things and made sure that those in the congregation who had little didn't go without. But you see, it's easier to replace all that with an altar call and an emotional experience that's personalized and privatized. Because we love things that are personalized and privatized in America. But what we find, what we find in Christianity and codified in our, in our confessions 
No, it's, there's the law that shows us that we are sinners. There was original sin. Adam had the ability to keep it. He didn't. He was our representative. We're conceived and born in guilt. We're polluted. We've, we have failed. But God in his grace sent Christ, the second Adam. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. And now follow him. Okay, we have to stop there, and then we'll pick up uh, in Lord's Day 5 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your law. We ask, Lord, that you would give us sobriety as your church about your word. And, Lord, that we would be satisfied with the good news and the amazing grace that you give us in Jesus Christ rather than trying to manufacture uh, our own religion. Uh, Father, it's something that we would think satisfies us more. May we be content. Grant us your grace, Lord, that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for tools like the Heidelberg Catechism that help us to know your word and to rightly divide it and that magnify the, the sweetness and richness of the gospel and all that you have given us in your Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.